We have a few more weeks planned for our study through Jeremiah. Tonight we'll be picking up in chapter 42. Um, and to, to get us kind of back into the flow of what's going on, Jerusalem has been sacked by King Nebuchadnezzar. The governor that he left in charge, Gedaliah, has been assassinated. And so the remnant of the remnant, you know, the refugees that have survived both of these incidents, have gathered together. They're currently near Bethlehem, and they're planning, we already know, to head for Egypt. But for us to get and understand what we're about to read tonight, we have to go back quite a ways in the book of Jeremiah to the prophecy he gave, uh, the vision he saw of the good figs and the bad figs. And we talked about how he sees these two baskets, one with good and healthy and vibrant figs and the other with overripe, rotten, completely trash figs. And God says, uh, here are these two baskets. And then surprisingly says the good figs are the ones that have already been deported. The ones who left in the days of Jehoiachin, uh, and he says the bad figs are the ones that remain in Jerusalem, despite the fact that they could look around and say, look, we made it through unscathed. Clearly, we are God's chosen people. Clearly, we are the righteous remnant. He says, no, actually, you're the bad figs. Uh, it is the rest of the story, Zedekiah's actions that we've been following the last few weeks, and then especially the final passages upon this remnant that really show them to be uh, the bad figs. It reminds me in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when Veruca Salt you know, gives, a, gives her great proclam uh, proclamatory song about what she really wants, which is basically everything. And she reveals herself to be a selfish brat. And then at the end of her song, she stands upon uh, the meter that determines if the eggs that the golden goose is laying are good eggs or bad eggs, and it swings heavy to the bad egg side, and she drops. We knew she was a bad egg, but the, the meter shows it. it. It demonstrates it. In the same way, we have a sneaking suspicion that the remnant left is bad figs, but it's this passage that shows us how bad things are. And just to stack the deck against them a little bit, let's remember here um, that Jeremiah has stuck it out and decided to stay with them, even though he was given kind of a golden opportunity to resettle in Babylon with the protection and provision of Nebuchadnezzar himself, and he chose to stay with these people. Let's also remember that Jeremiah has been proven to be tremendously and solely trustworthy in all the people of Judah, everything that he said at great cost to himself, leading to his imprisonment, his scorn, uh, sometimes being beaten, his life being threatened, that everything he said has truly come to pass. And so these people know, they have hard evidence that Jeremiah's word stands true, that he really is a prophet of God, and he's right there in their midst playing for their team on their side. However, as we saw at the end of last week, the reason they are in Bethlehem is because they have a plan, and the plan is to head for Egypt. Now, if you've studied with us uh, from Genesis to this point, or even if you're just familiar with the Old Testament history, generally going to Egypt is a bad idea. 
it almost always conveys the people involved looking for support from Pharaoh as opposed to the God who has promised to provide for them. This goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis when there's a famine in the land and he goes, I need Pharaoh's help. I need Egypt's help to survive the famine. Um, and instead of trusting that the Lord who gave him the land can keep him in the land, he tries to solve it on his own. But that tendency, that predisposition continues, and Israel, even in the book of Jeremiah, has been regularly rebuked for trusting in Egypt. And so we have reason to be concerned at this point, but I'm drawing the attention not just to point out the concern, but to show you their predilection, to show you that they're already determined to go. And keep that in mind as we open up here in chapter 42, verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Kariah, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, came near. Okay, so notice everybody here. The whole, uh, the whole of this remnant, leaders and lay people alike, are unified in what's about to happen. They come near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us. For all this remnant, because we are left with but a few, as your eyes see us. So they begin here with a recognition of how bad things are, that they are all that's left, and a plea for mercy. But that's not all. Notice they have a request, verse 3, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. This is the request. What they want to do is have Jeremiah go before the Lord, hear from the Lord, and speak to them God's will for their life. The next step, what they should do and where they should go. And Jeremiah the prophet, verse 4, said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Now, you remember, that's the demand that Zedekiah last week made of Jeremiah, right? I want you to go and then tell me everything, leave nothing out. The people here don't have to twist Jeremiah's arm, but he remembers, he reminds them um, that this is the way that the prophet-people relationship works. He lays out exactly what to expect, um, and notice as well that he's tremendously willing. This is his role. This is his part to play. Maybe this is a sign of a final change in the hearts of the people. Now they're ready and willing to hear God's word. Now they're prepared to obey. And so he says, sure, yes, I'll do that. Verse 5, then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends to us. Now, notice what that is. It's a vow. It's as if they all collectively raise their right hand and solemnly swear to obey whatever it is that God asks for them. Again, on the surface, this is tremendously positive. It's very different from the fingers in the ears Judea that we've gotten used to after years and years of ministry. But remember also that vows are very significant. Okay? Anytime I encounter the idea of a vow in Scripture, I always remind myself of what a vow is using a really simple acronym, V-O-W. Vows biblically are voluntary. 
Sacrifices may be required. Obedience to the law is required. But vows are by nature above and beyond. They don't begin with the command of God. They begin with a voluntary offering of people. Okay? But once they're made, they become obligatory. Oh, obligatory. They become an obligation, and God takes us at our word to the degree that he says it would be better to never make a vow than to make one and to not keep it. And that's why the advice given to us in Ecclesiastes is to remember that God is in heaven and we are on earth, and so when we speak, our words should be few. Okay. And so once it's made, it's an obligation and it becomes... Uh, important that we follow through. And then the last thing that we should keep in mind is, is a vow is demonstrably an act of worship. The whole motivation of a vow is a response to God's goodness, a reveling in all that he is and an overflow of that that leads to this voluntary obligation. And so here they're up front expressing with their hearts, at least on the outside, a willingness, a predisposition, a promise even of obedience. In fact, they heap it on a little bit deeper. Verse 6, whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Theologically, they've got it all nailed down here. The whole idea of going to God is not merely to get counsel. The orientation we should have towards seeking God's will should never involve the idea of needing a second opinion. Okay? It keeps in mind the reality that God is God, that he is sovereign. Jesus asks us as Christians, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I tell you to do? Right? There's a correlation, there's a recognition of our relationship. And so the desire to hear uh, from God is innately and inherently a desire to obey. Doctrinally, theologically, verbally, they're all on track here, but as we'll see, things are not as they appear, and to some degree that's made much worse by them heaping this on. It's made much worse by them voluntarily you know, raising their right hand and swearing to be obedient, no matter what, even if they think it's bad advice, they say. They're going to do it because they know that's how it works. Obedience leads to blessing. Verse 7. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Now again, we see Jeremiah's faithfulness, and here that faithfulness looks like waiting. He doesn't presume to speak for the Lord. He doesn't feel under the pressure to respond quickly. Because remember, tensions are a little high. At any given moment, Nebuchadnezzar could hear about what's gone down and send his troops. I can imagine that people in the remnant are impatient. In fact, we have examples of similar places where the people just can't wait for the word of the prophet, like Saul for Samuel. And so they act rashly. But Jeremiah isn't bothered by that. He sits, he prays, he waits, and ten days later, he hears from the Lord. Verse 8, then... He summoned Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If 
you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. And so here God gives his own vow. He gives his own promise. He gives his own word here. And he says, stay put. And the tearing down is over. And instead will be a building up. Stay put and the uprooting is over. Instead there will be a planting. He says, I'm done with. I'm finished with. I've relented from the judgment. I've stayed my hand from disciplining you. I'm ready now to rebuild. The demolition is over and the remodel is about to begin, God says. And he says, if you stay in the land, that's what you can expect. Now, notice also here that God speaks knowing the concerns or the fears that the Judeans would have about this. We already know those fears as well. They said in the last chapter, we need to leave because of Nebuchadnezzar. And so God speaks in verse 11, do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. This isn't hypothetical for God. He's not saying, just in case you're afraid, let me take time. He knows. He says, you're afraid, don't be. He knows what's really going on in their hearts. He speaks to it. He says, don't be afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. Notice what he does. He relativizes their fear. He doesn't say you don't need to be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar because who is he? You know, his credentials are pretty strong. He just wiped out their entire city. He says, don't fear about him because you have me, right? I am with you, so because of that, you have nothing to fear. In fact, why was it that Nebuchadnezzar had any power over the Judeans at all? Because God was not with them. Because they were against God. And now he says, but now things are set right. Now our relationship is restored. Now I'm ready to begin again. And that makes you, in in some sense, invincible to the plans and plottings of Nebuchadnezzar because he was only expressing God's will to begin with. He says, continuing here in verse 12, I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. And so just as Nebuchadnezzar was an expression of God's judgment, God brought judgment through the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. Here he says, I'm just as capable of bringing mercy through the mercy of Nebuchadnezzar. It says in the book of Proverbs that like the rivers of water, you know, that twist and turn and change directions, it says that so God changes the heart of the king. He's totally capable of giving, through Nebuchadnezzar, favor upon his people. In fact, we saw last week that Jeremiah makes a pretty good example of that. Although it is true uh, that the king of Babylon benefited from the ministry of Jeremiah and may have been impressed by the value or the asset he was to the Babylonian agenda, don't ever forget that by this time, Babylon knows that Jeremiah also says, but it's going to be over for you in 70 years and judgment's going to be done. In fact, you will become, all of that is known and present. And so where does the favor come upon Jeremiah from? From the favor of the Lord, because God had promised to protect and preserve him. And so we've seen this in practice. We know that it works. To some degree, Judah does as well, and here it's made explicit. But... On contrast, 
Verse 13, if you say we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Okay, so notice what Egypt is here to these Judean remnants, the provider and the protector. Right? That's why this is a theological issue and not merely you know, a relocation issue. Because the reason they want to go to Egypt is because Egypt gives them safety. The reason they want to go to Egypt is because Egypt gives them plenty. But in the ultimate sense, in the deepest sense, that's something only God can do. And we too are capable of similar mistakes, right? We can take the ways that God provides in our lives we can take the things that provide us safety, but over-elevate them to being so essential that without them, God has no other avenues to protect us. And so what happens, uh, which we generally call idolatry, is we say, without this one thing, I am in trouble. Unless I have this job, or unless I stay on my boss's good side, and that means, you know, flubbing the margins a little bit. That means covering up for him in his sin, unless I, we elevate the way we fear other people and we see them ultimately as the final and sole source of what we need. That's how idolatry works. And the truth is, God uses all sorts of ways to provide and to protect for us, and those are things we should honor. Martin Luther says, how else does God protect a city than with its policemen? That's the way God normally works, but we should never mistake God's masks, again, Martin Luther's language, for the face of God himself. And we should recognize that God doesn't need policemen to protect us. He's fully capable of other ways of protecting. And that's what's gone wrong here. They've mistaken um, Egypt that may be a source of these things to being the sole source of these things, and so it is an act of distrust against God. But he warns them about this. He says, if you do this, verse 15, hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there. Do you hear that phrase, to set your face? That is stubborn determination. Okay? It's not always wrong. This type of resolve can be a very good thing. In fact, it's the same turn of phrase used in the Gospels for Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, when he set his face to go towards Jerusalem, he knows what awaits him there, but he is fully resolved, and every step he takes towards Jerusalem is submission to the will of God. But there's also the possibility to be stubborn, to be relentless, to be resolved, committed to disobedience. And that's what he says here. If you set your face to go to Egypt... If you go to live there, then, verse 16, the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. He says, Egypt will fail you. The provision and the protection you're looking for, you will not find. Instead, you will find sword, and you will find famine. And remember, one of the reasons here is not just God predictively going, oh, it's not going to go well for Egypt, but the whole point and purpose of sword and famine throughout Jeremiah has been what? Discipline. And so if they're going to choose disobedience, 
then discipline is still necessary. If they're not willing to repent, and when we use that word in English, usually we're evoking the word in Greek that's translated repent, metanoia, to change your mind, okay? Um, but the imagery of metanoia is to turn away from and to turn unto, to turn around, if you will, to go in a different direction. And so because here God's judgment has been so present, there's been a call to repent, to turn around. But what would going to Egypt demonstrate? They still haven't turned. They're still headed in the same direction and steadfastly at this point, and so they can expect the same consequence. Verse 17, all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. Now, notice, to some degree, that's an escalation. There's a parallel between this and the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Jeremiah has been warning, repent or else, and now that or else has happened, and so we get a second chorus and it's again, repent or else, but it's also an escalation. Because last time there was still a remnant standing. But if they continue on the path, there will be no remnant left. And so there's a warning of the danger here of persistent and continuous disobedience. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt, and you shall see this place no more. And so he says, again, there's a parallel here. Same behavior leads to same consequence. And then he also adds, you shall not see this place anymore. You shall not return to the land. And remember, that's been a significant underlying message of the book of Jeremiah. Not only is judgment coming, but after the judgment, God will bring back the people to the land. It, this is so significant that Jeremiah even writes a letter to those who are already in Babylon and he says, settle down. Seek the welfare of the Babylonians because in their peace right now is your peace, but one day I will bring you back. But for these, for them to flee to Egypt would rob them of the rest of God's story. The sun that follows the darkness of night, the goodness that follows God's judgment. We've talked over and over again about how Jeremiah says, you're going to have to go through the destruction but you will come out the other end, but there will be no other end if they continue to persist in disobedience. And then notice last here, verse 19, the Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for certainty that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declares to us, and we will do it. And as I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you now, therefore, know for certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, in the place where you desire to go to live. Now, notice, 
Jeremiah has an insight here. The people don't even have to respond. He sees the same determination the narrator already let us in on in the last chapter. He knows the plan, and he basically says, you're condemned in your own mouth. You're the one who said you would obey, but you have no intentions to do so. And so what looks, what's supposed to be, mercy, that's what they asked for, is just more judgment. And so, chapter 43, verse 1, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent to him, sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah. Last time it was just all the men. Now it's all the insolent men. This is part and parcel with their character. It's an interesting thing to notice how often the Bible tacks on adjectives to particular people. One of my favorite ones in all of the Bible is blind Bartimaeus, right? That's become part of his name. He's known for being blind. And so if somebody says, oh yeah, I ran into Bartimaeus the other day, someone go, you mean blind Bartimaeus, right? The blind one, right? In the same way, insolence here isn't something that happens, to this group of people. It's not even something they do. It's become part of their nature. C.S. Lewis says this is the danger of being human. That we are constantly growing or moving or headed on a trajectory. And he says we've yet to see whether that road leads to something angelic or demonic. And he says uh, in another place in The Great Divorce, Uh, that if you give basically our worst sins an eternity to grow and to thrive, at the end of a grumbler's life, you have a human who's become, adjectively, a grumbler. But after years and years and years and years and years following, all you have left is the grumble itself. And that's what we're seeing here. It's it's their insolence, their stubbornness, their set-facedness has become their very nature. And so notice the insolent men speak. All the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. Now I think it's worthwhile to just pause for a second and think about this. Their response is not just, you're right, we're not going to do it. I don't know why we asked. Right? But they accuse Jeremiah of lying. Okay. Now, from our perspective, we can see where the lie in the story is. It only exists in one place. It was in their upfront offer to be obedient no matter what God called them to. But in remembering that, we also see something that's very interesting here. And it, it makes us ask, why did they even ask? Why would they make such a strong vow if there were certain options that were not on the table for them. It almost seems, doesn't it, as if they were looking for God to affirm what they were already set on doing themselves. They wanted God's word not as an act of guidance or not as a word from the Lord to be obeyed, but as a stamp and justification of what they were already doing. And to some degree, it seems a little bit weird until we realize how often that happens in human life. 
how often we go to God and what we're looking for is a higher authoritative expression of our own wills or hearts. We want God to sign off on things and not even so we know that we're headed in the right direction, but as a badge of honor, as a badge of respect. It's, it's almost like the kid who sets up a scenario knowing what the outcome is going to be because he wants to publicly be affirmed for the type of person who does this type of thing. They don't want to do the right thing. They want to be known as those who do the right thing. And that's not the same thing. It almost seems as well as if this possibility that God would be against their plans is an impossibility. There's no way that God could ask me to do X, Y, or Z so it's safe for me to open-handedly say whatever you want. But again, that mistakes the reality of who God is. That God's ways, his plans are sometimes incomprehensible, sometimes surprising. I've been preparing for my message on Sunday morning uh, as we look at Christmas. And I've been looking at the tail end of Matthew chapter 1 where Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. And it struck me that the first Christmas begins with an unplanned pregnancy. And Joseph is not thrilled. Right? God has to explain what's going on, but it doesn't fit in Joseph's paradigm or his plans. In fact, the whole thing is pretty disturbing to him. It's an interruption. It's unplanned. It's unexpected. To some degree, it's unwanted. And yet it's the greatest gift. I love the words of Paul Tripp. He says that too often... We want God to be involved in our lives because we're trying to build our kingdom and he's powerful enough to bring it about. He says, but the way that God works is he comes in and offers us a better kingdom, right? Anything else reduces God's down to a means to our self-imposed ends. It leaves us in the throne and God on the field doing the work. And so as, as frustrating and obtuse as Judea appears here, they also appear tremendously human. But in the midst of this, we can see the meter flinging itself hardcore to the left and blinking bad egg. Now on the outside is evident what's always been on the inside. Right? They're not suddenly insolent. They're always insolent. And this is an important thing to understand about the way that the Bible talks about human sin to begin with. In the words of Pastor Chuck Smith, stealing a horse doesn't make you a horse thief. It just proves that you are one. Right? And that's how Jesus talks about our sin as well. It's not found in our actions and the accidents of our life, but in the very deep recesses of our heart, whether they ever get the chance to be expressed at all. The problem is one of nature. And again, that's the glory of the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about, is that it's not just a change in the code. God doesn't just go, you know... Clearly, you're all struggling to keep my law, so all great on a curve. And those of you who came closest enough to perfection, you're my people now. Nor does God say, you know, since you're all struggling, I'll just lower the bar. Instead, he makes us new. And not from the outside with new rules or instructions on how to meet those rules, but from the inside with a new heart. 
And so at that point, the people of Judea become a picture of the great problem that God is solving. And one of the things that God is doing in Judah as well as through Judah. In other words, for their sake, because remember, who are the first recipients of the promise of the new covenant? These Judeans. But do they need it? Of course they do. Do they know they need it? They do now. Right? With every pressing day, they resonate with what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I want to do, those are the things that I will not do. Woe is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a request for a change of nature. That's a request for deliverance. And Judea doesn't just need deliverance from death. Doesn't just need deliverance from Babylon. They need deliverance from themselves. I've been listening to a class uh, from the Great Courses website on the City of God, Augustine's great work, the longest book we have from the ancient world. And it's been a wonderful class, uh, but he was talking about Augustine's view in a particular place where he criticizes the Roman Empire of calling evil the only thing that doesn't actually bring about evil, pain, discomfort, suffering. And so the way that they had defined life was basically to avoid those things is the good life. And he says, but actually it does nothing about the real evil in life. That has nothing to do with circumstances, but the behavior of human beings. And the professor, he just nailed the most genius moment and he said, the truth is, we all agree with the Romans. And he said, the way that we know it is just with one question, he said, are you more afraid of being dead or being evil? God won't settle for life if that life is merely a life of corruption, sin, and living death. Since the garden, since the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he's abstained from allowing us to eat from the tree of life because we can't find true life as we are. And so God is effectively, in calling Judah's bluff, also revealing how deep their need is here. The other thing I want to point out to you is that they're so blind here, they're so stubborn, they're so resistant to this that they accuse Jeremiah of lying, right? That's the most likely uh, explanation that they can come up with. The only way that we can understand what you just said is that you're making this all up, Jeremiah, despite the fact, again, that all of Jeremiah's words so far have come to pass. Despite the fact that he's the only one who's proven to be so faithful to Jeremiah that unlike the other prophets, the false prophets, didn't capitulate and say peace, peace when there is no peace. Despite the fact that he freely and willingly has committed to these people, he's the evil one. He's the one who's plotting. That's the only way they can see things. In fact, notice what they say here. You didn't tell the truth, but verse 3, but Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. 
Their conspiracy theory broadens out here. They're not just afraid of Jeremiah, but Baruch. And if you remember, Baruch is the one who's been operating kind of as Jeremiah's scribe. He's the one who wrote down all the words of Jeremiah and read them aloud in the temple precincts and took that scroll to Jehoiachin. It's this Baruch. It's the Baruch that we believe is primarily responsible for the Jeremiah book that we're reading today. We don't know much about him. We don't have anything that would make sense of this, what connections he would have with Babylon. You may remember last week that Jeremiah himself was accused of being a mole working for Babylon. But tying Baruch into this is is just one more level removed, but it is incorrect. In fact, remember, Baruch is right here. They're not accusing someone off in the distance, but someone in their very midst. But in it, they demonstrate, again, their steadfastness to disobedience. I want you to notice one other thing here. It is possible that the reason they respond in this way is because they really believe that Jeremiah is a liar. In other words, it's possible that their beliefs are leading to their actions. But I think we forget how often our actions or our predispositions or our will can modify our beliefs. From the outside, this is pretty easy to see, right? Their concept of reality here is not very plausible. That Jeremiah is lying, that Baruch is plotting, that the best explanation of these things is that God is fine with them going to Egypt and Jeremiah is after their worst future. just doesn't make any sense at all, but it does to them, right? I don't think they're lying about this. What would be the value of that? They really believe this. You see, uh, epistemologically, when we talk about how knowledge works, one of the things we talk about is cognitive dissonance. The idea behind cognitive dissonance is very simple. It's that when your life, whether it's your desires or your actions, or your attitudes, and your beliefs don't align when there's dissonance, when they're incongruent, one of them has to change. Okay? We don't do, at least in the traditional understanding of cognitive dissonance, we don't do this dissonance very well. And so one has to give. Either we will change our behavior to reflect our belief, or we will modify our belief to reflect our behavior. It's the reason why my friend Craig, who often leads worship for us here and is a youth pastor, has discovered a great success when young high school age kids sit down, specifically boys, sit down in his office and go, you know what, I've been thinking about it, Craig, and I just don't think this Christianity thing is true. And almost without fail, Craig will lean forward and say, you're sleeping with your girlfriend, aren't you? And why does he make such a bold and out of the blue accusation? Because it's just as possible that these young boys need a reason for Christianity to suddenly not be true as it is that they suddenly found a reason that proves it's not true. I don't think we always recognize that we are predisposed to that reality as human beings. But as sure as we see it in the Judeans here, it exists in ourselves. I always tell people who are exploring Christianity that it's good to be skeptical. That the Bible has no criticism of those who take the time and do their due diligence and ask the questions as long as they're also skeptical of themselves. 
Because the truth is, to accept the reality of Christianity in its totality carries great weight and response for your life. Okay? It will determine what happens next, what you have to give up, what you have to repent of, what you have to walk away from, who you hang out with. Do not think that you don't carry an implicit bias to how this conversation ends. In the same way, it's true for us as Christians, we should be open-handed with things. When we have aha moments that suddenly give us freedom to live the way we always thought we should live, we should slow our roll a little bit. We should wonder if we're really even after the Word of God. Are we opening the Bibles to see what God says, or are we opening it to justify what we already believe and live on? That's what we see in Judah here. That's what we sometimes find in our lives. And so, verse 4, Johanan the son of Kariah and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan the son of Kariah and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they'd been driven. The men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person who Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. And they came to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Taphnes. Now I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, Baruch and Jeremiah go with them, and we do not know if that's at the end of a spear. We do not know if they say, and you know what, you're coming too, or if Jeremiah and Baruch just willingly follow. The second one would make sense, wouldn't it? We've already seen Jeremiah double down and commit to these people. And as we'll see, he's got more ministry to do that's going to take place in Egypt because that's where his audience is. But it also may be that they basically somewhat... Um, superstitiously think it's safer to keep Jeremiah with them. Whether they're afraid that the next thing he'd do is go tell on them to Nebuchadnezzar and say, by the way, they're hiding, hiding out in Egypt, or in a larger way that wherever Jeremiah is, there is safety, there is protection. Like uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they make that mistake about the ark, right? If we bring the ark into battle, we'll be safe. Whatever reason, though, Jeremiah goes with them. And notice here, it takes time not just to talk about the people we knew he were, were here, but a much wider group of people. Why is that? Because what is the condition of Judea once they cross the boundary line to Egypt? It is empty. Just as Jeremiah said, the land lies desolate and unoccupied. And again, the prophecies of Jeremiah told us early on that would be the outcome because even the remnant was bad figs. And so they pull into the town of Taphnes. And just as I mentioned, Jeremiah's ministry is not yet over. And so here it continues in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Taphnes. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Taphnes, in the sight of the men of Judah. Now, Taphnes isn't known for being one of the ancient capitals of Egypt, which moved around a little bit. None of those places, by the way, was Cairo. Um, 
But there was a summer home, a vacation palace, if you will, for Pharaoh. In fact, we have the archaeological uh, remnants of this today. We know where this building is in the ancient city of Taphnes today. And God gives Jeremiah a task here. And again, it is a prophetic act. He says, I want you to take some really big stones and then I want you to big, uh, dig up the sidewalk in front of Pharaoh's palace and bury them underneath it. It's demonstrative and I'm assuming Pharaoh is out of season at the moment. I can't imagine that Pharaoh and his guards are occupying the palace and watching this random Jew dig up you know, the landscape. But nonetheless, he goes through this act, he takes these big stones, and he buries them there, and then he's supposed to say this, verse 10, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I've hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. In other words, here's how, you go, how you're going to know that God is the one who is acting here. Jeremiah just draws an X on the ground and he says, Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to set up his royal tent right here. Now, remember, that, that's not just a, you know, an arbitrary prediction. Why would he set up right here in front of Pharaoh's palace? Because he's going to put Egypt under his thumb. Because Pharaoh is going to provide no protection to the Judeans. And in the same way that Judah, and specifically the city of Jerusalem, was sieged and defeated, now the refuge that they've flown to in Egypt will experience the same fate. Verse 11, he shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. That trio and its orientation we've already encountered in Jeremiah. That's what God said would happen, that those who were destined for the sword would get it, that those who were destined to pestilence would get it. They think that they've escaped it here in Egypt, but they haven't. Instead, the sword and the pestilence will come to them. Verse 12, I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin and he shall go away from there in one piece. And so just as the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and provided no protection, how much more the gods that are not gods in Egypt? And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to do the same thing, and then there's a very provocative image of how easy this is going to be, as if Nebuchadnezzar takes off his cloak that's got some fleas on it, and he just flicks it, right? No more fleas. So it will be with Egypt. Verse 13, he shall break the obelisks of, Hi uh, of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. Now we'll see more about the judgment that's to come on Egypt uh, in the book of nations, which we will open up next week. Uh, but first, Jeremiah's ministry proper, in the chronological sense, ends here in chapter 44. Settled in the land of Egypt, so first he's given this demonstrative act that we just saw in 43, and then we see kind of the, the final messages of his ministry here in chapter 44. The words, excuse me, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdol, at Taphnes, at Memphis, 
and in the land of Pathros. Okay, so now he's speaking to all Jews who have settled in Egypt. Some of these people probably started in Taphnes and spread out. Others fled to Egypt earlier. Because remember, Babylon attacked Jerusalem and Judea three times over the course of 25 years. Some people just realized it would be safer just to go to Egypt. And so they've already settled there. They're already living there. They're already existing there. And he writes a message to all of them living in Egypt. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disasters that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed provoking me to anger in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Now, we've seen basically line by line this prophecy so many times in Jeremiah, but it has one difference now. It's not, I will do, it's I have done. And he says, you are all eyewitnesses of me doing just as I promised to do and basically carrying out the sentence for the crimes that I had accused you of, the worship of other gods and the disobedience of God. Notice how he continues here. Verse 6, therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day, and now, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit, present tense, commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you, man and woman, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Okay. Now, we're, we're not told what's wrong here, just how foolish it is. He says, you've seen where this road leads, and he says, now... Why would you walk it again? Why do you commit this great evil, not just against me, but against yourselves? To cut off man, woman, child, to bring yourself to the end, if you know there's a direct relationship between my word and consequence, then why do you live as if that isn't the case? Verse 8, why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have come to live so that you may be cut off and come a curse and a taunt among the nations of the earth. And so they continue in their idolatry, worshiping other gods, even in the land of Egypt, even though God's word and his wrath against those acts has already come to pass in Jerusalem. Verse 9, have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, and the evil of your wives, when they, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walk in my law and my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. He says, you have all of these examples of where this leads, including not just your friends, neighbors, and countrymen, but your own lives, right? You're all living testimony 
to the consequence of disobedience, and yet you persist. No repentance, no fear of the Lord, no obedience. Verse 11, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'll set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I'll take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt, they shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed from the least to the greatest. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I've punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. Now notice there is no vagary in this. Line by line, detail by detail, it's all laid out. But as he does so, it emphasizes the totalness and the holistic of the judgment until we finally get to the tail end there except for some fugitives okay and so even here there's going to be a remnant but a remnant of a remnant is almost too small to even mention and their nature will be as fugitives right not necessarily a good life verse 15 then So Jeremiah gives this message. He's probably going to all these major cities and speaking it. And this is the response that he gets. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods. Okay, so they're not ignorant of what's going on. It's not like Jacob when he's fleeing from Laban. And Laban pursues him and he says, Hey, I guess I get why you wanted to quit. I I get why you took my daughters because they're your wives and my grandchildren how dare you take my household gods? And Jacob goes, please, what would I want with your idols? If you find them in any tent, the person whom that tent belongs to, they will die, not knowing that his own wife had stolen the idols, right? And it's only because she hides them very well by telling her father that she can't rise from her couch because she's on her menses, that that remains hidden. But Jacob speaks arrogantly and proudly. Here, it's different. They know exactly what's going on in their homes. They know exactly what their wives are up to. So he knew that the women were doing that. In this great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make our offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. Now, that's kind of a strange reading of history when we first read it. It's like, wait, if you were persisting in this and it was famine and sword, how can you say that it was a time of safety? Are they really just grass is always greener, you know, the golden years reflection that's never true? And I would suggest, no, it's something a little bit more significant than that going on. They're looking back, not to recent days, but all the way back before the reforms of Josiah. In other words, they're looking over their generation's history and going, what went wrong? Where did everything turn for us? And they go, it's when Josiah... He made us destroy all the high places 
Josiah, when he stopped all the offerings that were unsanctioned to other gods and brought us back to worshiping God, that's when things went wrong. Okay. In other words, to some degree they're saying, Jeremiah, it is because of listening to people like you that all these things have happened. Now, in some ways, you can say, all right, well, that's an alternative understanding of history, and history is very difficult to gauge and to judge for primary causes. But if you just turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, who lives prior to the days of Josiah and is calling for these reforms, he makes a challenge to these gods, including the queen of heaven. And the challenge is very simple. Which one of these gods actually speaks, knows the future, brings their will to pass? He says, I among all the gods is the only one who declares the end from the beginning. Who says up front what will be and nothing will stop me. And what these people don't have from the queen of heaven is any form of revelation. Right? They're working in the ambiguity of circumstance going well to the best of my ability, discerning the wills of the gods. This must be the explanation. Whereas what if they had the entire duration from the days of Isaiah till today, continuous representation from the prophets of God making clear what will happen. And even here in Jeremiah's words, wasn't that the great emphasis up front? I said all this was going to happen. You saw it happen with your own eyes, and yet you persist. And so, they say, then we prospered, but since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out her drink offerings to her? Now, that sounds a little bit redundant. Why, why did the women speak up in this way? The thing you need to remember is for these Jews, the fact that they worship the queen of heaven does not mean they do not worship Yahweh. They are synchristic in their worship. They think it's important to do both. And so they're not saying, we chose the wrong God, but we neglected a God who really mattered. And the reason why I say that I can, uh, or why I know I can say that with confidence, is because what they're trying to say here is, we had our husband's approval for the vows that we made. And that's a requirement in the Old Testament law. That a wife's vow had to be validated and known by her husband for her to have to keep it. In other words, a husband could step in and go, oh, you don't have to keep that vow, and his authority would be stronger than her word. And so she says, Jeremiah, there's no justification for us not to keep our vows. The Old Testament says we need to keep our vows. Our husband, we're in on it, so this is a valid vow. We have to keep it. That's how entangled Jewish understanding has become with the worship around them, that they both see the faithfulness the law requires and miss the very heartbeat of the law, right? Where does the law begin in the book of Deuteronomy? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what follows just after that? You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, and so that's what's going on here, and that's the justification they give. They say we have a religious responsibility 
to fulfill our vows. Verse 20, then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did not it come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It's because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. He says, you're exactly wrong. It is just the opposite. In fact, it's God's observation of these offerings that led to this consequence, that led to this judgment. Verse 24, Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her, then confirm your vows and perform your vows. In other words, God says, so be it. You're committed, you're resolved. With your own word, you've said, no, there's no turning around. We will do this. And so God, through Jeremiah, just reinforces it. He continues here, verse 26, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, As the Lord God lives. And Jeremiah lets us in on an interesting possibility here. Can it be that the vows they made to the queens of heaven actually evoked Jehovah, we swear by the Lord God that we will fulfill our vows? Probably not. But it is dramatic, isn't it? Which is why Jeremiah evokes it. And he says, in the same way, God is also making a vow. And his vow is that none of you will praise his name anymore. He says, verse 27, Behold, I'm watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. Sometimes, when you do an experiment, you come to an ambiguous conclusion. What do you do? You do another experiment, right? You try and set the parameters and go, okay, well, maybe it's possible that this got in the way, so let's remove that possibility. And so Jeremiah basically says here, okay, if it was your lack of offerings to the queen of heaven that led you to this horrible situation, you're offering them now. You're committed to it. You're vowing to do it. So let's run the experiment and see what we will happen. In other words, this isn't just God's judgment for their consistent disobedience. It is a demonstration of the emptiness of their gods who will let them down because they are not gods at all verse 28 and those who escape the sword shall return from the land of egypt to the land of judah few in number and all the remnant of judah who came to the land of egypt to live shall know whose word will stand mine or theirs let's see whose vows are stronger 
Let's see who keeps their word. Verse 29, this shall be the sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into his hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. Now, notice what God doesn't do here. He doesn't go, okay, so you don't believe that I'm involved, so I'm going to do a right here, right now, summoned for the moment miracle. Just watch. Where is the queen of heaven? Now, there are occasions like this. This is what happens with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? Elijah asked the people, why do you stand between two opinions? If God is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. Now let's demonstrate who's the real God. And he sets up this altar in this competition. And what happens? For Baal and his prophets, nothing. But then God takes this water-soaked sacrifice and consumes it, including the stones. God does those things. But at this point in Israel's history... For these particular people who have been so steadfast and persistent in their rebellion, what will be the sign that God is who he says he is? What will be the proof that he keeps his word? Judgment itself. It's going to happen. Then you will know. In the New Testament, it says that when Jesus returns in the book of Philippians, that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that's not a statement of universal salvation. That every person will willingly and happily bow the knee to Jesus. But they will know the truth nonetheless. There will be no question about who is God, about who is Lord, about who is judge of all the earth when Jesus returns. The judgment will be the sign itself final evidence and that's a dark and and hard place to end the book of Jeremiah although to be fair he told us up front how this was going to be I remember when I was a young kid uh, we went to see a movie and our movie was sold out or something so we just wandered into American Beauty and movie aside what struck me about the film at the time was in the opening line, the main character introduces himself and says, in three weeks I'll be dead. And then the movie just plays that out. And when you get to the death, it's surprising. In fact, it was part of a whole trend. That whole decade was about making films where they told you up front what was going to happen and still surprised you when it happened at the end. Okay. Jeremiah's ministry has been like that. God says, I'm going to send you to a people, but they will not listen. Now we come to the end of it. We've known the end from the beginning. But I want you to remember that what we have in the presence and the persistence of Jeremiah is a constant witness of another way. If God knows this about Judah, if he knows that this is where they're headed, if he knows they're steadfast, why send Jeremiah at all? The presence of Jeremiah's warning comes from the mercy of God. He provides this not just as a testimony to how bad these people really are, 
but also as a manifestation of how gracious God's heart really is. Persistently and continuously, Jeremiah has spoken. And he's not gone unheeded because he was unclear. Because he was unresolved. Because he was a coward. Because his message was comfortable. He's gone unheeded for no reason except the Judeans' unwillingness to hear. And so again, even his presence manifests God's tremendous mercy and goodness that he would even warn those who will not be warned. That he would even call those who will not be called. That he would even continuously walk alongside and call to turn around those who will not listen. That is the manifestation of God's goodness in the book of Jeremiah. When we return next week, we'll begin uh, the last major section of the book of Jeremiah. Sorry, thank you, Richard. Not next week. Next week would be Christmas Day. So not till January 2nd will we return, but when we do, we'll get into the last major section of the book of Jeremiah, the book of nations, which is somewhat of an appendix. But the narrative of Jeremiah's life ends here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your goodness. And we thank you for the reality, Lord, that you speak even when we have our fingers in our ears, even when we are resolved to go our own way, Lord, that you are so good and so gracious and so merciful, Lord. And we know, according to Paul's letter to the Romans, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And here it is in the ministry of Jeremiah, because as faithful as he's been, as present as he's been, as much as he's wept for the people of Judah, how much more the God who sent Jeremiah. We praise you for that tonight. We thank you that you're that type of God. And when that's how you treat sinners, how much more you have for us as sons. We praise you tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.